0: You ever had someone uh, close to you betray your most heartfelt good intentions? Someone close to you, friend, family member, co-worker, boss, uh, whatever, someone in, in close proximity. You ever had somebody like that betray what was your most heartfelt good intentions. They called evil what you knew in here was good. We all know the other side of it. We've all done things where we knew in here our intentions weren't pure. They weren't heartfelt in the way that comes from the glory of God and from His heart. But, but have you been betrayed in ways where you knew somebody was calling ill what, what you were doing that was a good intention? Someone close to you. Like most of you, at some degree or another, we've all experienced this, and I know I have. And I'll tell you a little bit about some of our church history here. This was many years ago, um, but I experienced this a little bit here. We're beyond this. It's not been like this for a long time, but I want to tell you one of these substantive examples for me where I felt like, listen, I, my heart's right in this. There were some folks probably seven years ago or so uh, who wrote some things about me in letters and emails uh, that weren't intended for me to see. (laughs) Hey, but guess who saw them? Uh, So they made it around to me and uh, it it was something that really at the time it shook me up for a long time. It really it really did. Honestly, Uh, the details of it all unimportant. Uh, It's not worth sharing uh, with you. But it was it was page after page after page after page of, of personal character attacks about me where I just sat there feeling like I, like, I don't know who you're talking about. By the way, comma, side note, 90% of them, and this is the case when we receive this stuff a lot of times, maybe it's been the case for you when you've been betrayed. 90% of these were from people who didn't actually have the courage to talk to me in person. Which, are we preaching yet? Let's call that for what it is. Cowardice that doesn't have the integrity or the courage to do things like Matthew 18 and other places in Scripture tell us to end of side note. So anyway, it felt like uh, a personal betrayal and uh, it felt like a betrayal from people. Honestly, I was just trying to serve as best I could. I didn't do it perfectly. Let me just say that clearly. Didn't do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly now, but My heart and my intentions were for the good of the mission of God, for the advancement of the gospel. And and even I thought and was hoping for the good of these people's lives. They clearly believed otherwise. And they attacked my character. By the way, side note part two, pretty used to that. Been a pastor for a while now. Pretty used to that now. Bring on the accusations and the character attacks. Because the glory of God and the movement of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom is more important than how I feel. End of side note number two. <clears throat> well, 99% of those kinds of things, it's been years, it's been many years, 99% of that was directed at me. But I want to tell you about one other one. I want to tell about one that I know of. That wasn't about me. with was somebody else. And I'm ashamed to say this. I'm just going to name this for what it is because it applies to where we're headed, believe me. I'm ashamed to say we had someone hand the elders a note about someone in our congregation singing in a way, like we're talking about in the pews, not up here, someone singing in a way which they found personally offensive. Oh, this person around me, I don't like listening to them. That was the nature of the note anonymously written, handed to an elder. This is cowardice that deserves to be, listen, deserves to be condemned for what it is, which is an attempt to hinder the forward movement of the gospel. Because self, it's what it was. That's what it was. You ever had somebody close to you betray your deepest and most heartfelt intentions for good? That person sitting in the pews who doesn't know how to sing as beautifully as you may have a heart that loves Jesus like you couldn't possibly imagine. So that when when that person's poorly sung notes come out, Jesus hears it perfectly perfectly. Whereas perhaps for years, because of this, he's hearing something else. Are we preaching yet? When someone else close to you questions your most heartfelt intentions for good, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. Maybe it was a family member, a good friend, a coworker. whoever it was, whatever they did, however they, they did it. They attacked your personal character and they called your good intentions bad. Here's why we're talking about this. Because in my own life, in the example of that note handed to the elder, that's relatively small potatoes compared to what Jesus is experiencing in Mark 3. In Mark 3, every single person around him missed who he was and missed why he came and was taking advantage of the opportunity to attack him. This is the conflict around the Son of Man that develops in Mark, coming to fruition in a way which every population around him missed who he was, didn't see the kingdom, was sure they knew exactly who he was and why he came and yet took advantage of the opportunity to attack him and to make the conflict Difficult. We're talking about all populations, the crowds, the religious leaders, and even his own family. Can you imagine that the, the strength of character it took for Jesus to stay strong in that kind of circumstance? Can you imagine the incredible depth of relationship with the Father that it required for him to stay true to his calling and mission in the circumstances where everybody around him, everybody around him is attacking and opposing what he was doing? He didn't wilt under the circumstances. He didn't give up. He didn't lash out at his accusers. He went right on doing ministry with integrity as he knew he had to in order. These are the stakes. These are the stakes in the matter. In order for those who accused him to eventually see who he was and to join in the mission. If he hadn't stayed with integrity in the middle of the attacks from everybody around him, There would have been no chance they would have known who He was and why He came. Those were the stakes in the matter. Mark 10.45, which is a great verse. If you're taking notes, it's a good verse. It's a key verse in all of Mark um, along with one fourteen and 15, a couple others we'll talk about along the way. Uh, but Mark ten forty five is a great verse that speaks to this. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood that he was sent to serve in a way which would suffer, and part of that suffering was ministering to those and we're not talking about just me, we're talking about you, we're talking about Jesus ministering to those who attacked and maligned his character and mission, those who called his good intentions bad. Turn with me, if you would please, to Mark 3, 20-35. We see Jesus standing strong with integrity among three populations of people who didn't see him clearly and who maligned his mission. The populations were the crowds, the religious establishment, and his own family. Jump in at verse 20 where it says this, going a phrase at a time, straight up Bible. Then he went home on the heels of a big public ministry. Jesus retreated with his disciples there to his ministry home base in Capernaum, which was on the north of the Sea of Galilee. We've got the Sea of Galilee up north, connected to the Jordan, uh, connected by the Jordan River to the Dead Sea in the south. He's up in the north here, early part of his ministry. So he went home to his home base in Capernaum, and the crowd, verse 20, gathered again, it says. They'd been gathering frequently. It says they gathered again so that they could not even eat, it says. This keeps happening everywhere Jesus goes. Mark refers to crowds 52 times in the gospel, 40 of them in the first nine chapters, the early parts of his ministry, of his public ministry of three years. So we're only halfway through chapter three, verse 20, and this is the sixth time that Mark mentions these crowds. Earlier in chapter three, Mark tells us that Jesus tries to withdraw from them. He even has the disciples prepare a boat in case the crowds begin to press on him too much because they were trying to touch him in case they could be healed by him. So here in verse 20, The crowd is such a distraction that Jesus and the disciples couldn't even eat in peace. They're trapped inside the house. So this is an important recurring theme in Mark. If you're taking notes, write this down. Crowds get in the way of seeing Jesus and participating in his mission. The crowds got in the way of clearly seeing Jesus and participating in his mission. Which is to say, Mark wants us to hear, don't get snookered into thinking that a a lot of people automatically means a whole lot. The crowds weren't as against Jesus as a religious establishment or even his own family, as we'll see. They were sort of ambivalent in that sense. But they did provide a distraction to clearly seeing Jesus and to participating in his mission. So, so Mark is saying, don't get snookered into thinking it's about numbers. This is about engagement in the kingdom of God. Are we preaching yet? This is about engagement in the, in the kingdom of God for every one of us. But it wasn't just the crowds. It was the religious establishment as well. We saw that last week. The Pharisees couldn't see clearly who Jesus was and why he had come. And we saw how their their own traditions kept them from seeing Jesus clearly and participating in his mission, even though they understood what he was claiming. They understood of all the people what he came to do and that he came with real authority. So up to this point in Mark, we've got, we got, two, we got two categories of people who aren't seeing clearly who Jesus was and not participating in his message, in his mission. Number one, the crowds. Number two, the religious establishment. But look at the very next verse, verse 21. It says, and when his family heard of it, When his family heard that he was becoming popular, teaching and healing and casting out demons, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. His family says, Jesus has clearly lost it. (laughs) He's out there claiming things like, the kingdom of God has come because I'm here. Crazy talk. He's out of his mind. The word Mark uses here for seizing. is a a word he chooses carefully because it was often used to refer to uh, arresting a criminal outside of the Bible. It was used for that. Here in the Bible, he uses this word 15 times in the Gospel of Mark, 12 of which occur in contexts that are openly hostile to him, or at least adversarial to him. So just think about this at this point. (laughs) We know the crowds are just there to sort of watch the circus, We know the Pharisees were already against Jesus. But here Mark is telling us his own family was trying to seize him, calling him insane. Those closest to him were openly hostile. John 7 tells us flat out that his brothers did not believe in Jesus. So that's the basic setting here for where we are in the text. But before we go any further, I want to point out a real cool literary technique, a real cool literary feature in the text here that Mark, uh, that Mark uses to help us interpret our passage. It's called a sandwich technique. It's called a sandwich technique. Uh, you can look that up later on. Just put, you know, well, actually, if you put sandwich technique in Mark, it won't come out right, so Google carefully. Uh, sandwich technique, um, if you look up interpolation, or inter- intercalation, intercal uh, and the word Mark, it will come up with cool stuff. This is the sandwich technique of bread, meat, and bread. This is a literary technique that Mark uses in this passage from 20 to 35. He uses it nine times in the Gospel total. And here's what it is. He gives us the first part of a story, and then he inserts a totally new, seemingly unrelated story After that, that's the meat. And then he goes back to the story that he began, the first part of the sandwich, to the second part of the the bread and finishes up that second piece of the the story. So there are two stories. (laughs) A bread story. This is our bun here, I guess, top and bottom. A bread story and a meat story. And every time he does this in Mark, the meat is the theological key that interprets the bread. The meat is the theological key that interprets the bread. So we're going to say some things about the family that may sound like, oh, you've gone too far. That's, that's not in the text. It's in the text because it's in the text. This is the theological key. So when you put them together, the bread and the meat, you realize, oh, we have we have an entirely new sandwich here. Then you can see what Mark is communicating. So, We're all tracking on that so far. In our passage so far, we've looked at verses 20 and 21. That's bread part one. Okay? We'll get to the the meat in a little bit here, but I want to go down to (laughs) bread part two. A, B, A prime. We're going to A prime here, which is in verses 31 and 32. I want you to look down there with me for the bottom piece of bread. You'll notice all the same kinds of elements. In the first part, verses 20 and 21, are also there in 31 and 32. It says, 31, his mother and his brothers came. In other words, his family is there on the scene again and standing outside, meaning they're back at the house again, just like they were on top, with Jesus and his disciples trying to eat in peace. And they sent, meaning his mother and his brothers, sent to him and called him. They're after him again, just like earlier. Verse 32, and a crowd, there's the crowd again, was sitting around him. The crowd is here just like it was earlier. And they said to him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, this word seeking, on the face of it, when you first read that thing, they're just just looking for him. Like it's just an innocent looking for him. But every single time Mark uses this word in the gospel, which is ten times. It describes an attempt to manipulate and to gain control over Jesus. So, were they really seeking? (laughs) What they were seeking was to tell him, Would you stop being so crazy? You're making the family look bad. Come in here. Get out of there. (laughs) They're seeking to thwart his mission. In fact, The theological meat, the middle part, makes clear that Mike is trying. Mike, who is that? Mark is trying. (laughs) Mark is trying. We're inventing new gospels. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mike. The theological meat is the part that says the family may look like it's innocent on the face of it, but they are in opposition to the mission of Jesus, just like the meat in the middle. That's the sandwich. So let's look at the meat in the middle. Never knew you are going to... This is what feeding from the Word is. You really shouldn't laugh at that. <clears throat> Verses 22 to 30 for the meat. Let's look there. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, which is Mark's way of saying the Pharisees were not necessarily in Jerusalem They're popular teachers with the people. This is the Word is getting out about Jesus. This is the scribes from Jerusalem, the big dogs are hearing about the, the uh, popularity of Jesus now. So the word has gotten out to the big dogs in Jerusalem, and the scribes were sent by them to check out Jesus. And so that's why it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Jesus is possessed by the devil, they were saying. And by the prince of demons, he casts out Demons' obvious implication is that Jesus is in cahoots with Satan. He's on Satan's team, they were saying. Now notice, notice that they didn't deny Jesus' power. They didn't even accuse him of being an imposter. They were disputing the source of his power, ascribing it to Satan rather than to God. They're calling the work of God the work of Satan. So Jesus begins to to answer them and just refutes them with a simple, logical argument. In, In basic terms, before we get into the rest of the text, what Jesus is doing here in the next number of verses is this. He's saying, if the work I am doing is opposed to Satan, if the work I am doing is diametrically opposed to Satan, then how can I be empowered by Satan? That's what he says in various ways. Look at verse 33. He says he called to them, called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the scribes, what they just said is true. And if I'm in cahoots with Satan, then Satan is clearly working at cross purposes with himself, which will only speed up his fall. That's what he's saying there. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If there's internal division, it's, it's not going to stand long. Same thing, verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. There's internal division. It's not going to stand long. Verse 26. If Satan has risen up against himself, as you say that, that I'm doing, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, then he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. If I'm in cahoots with Satan, then Satan is clearly working at cross purposes with himself, which will only speed up his fall, his demise. So in verses 27 to 30 here, he explains further how he has been working against Satan. This is the counterexample here, how he's been working against Satan. Look at 27. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. He's referring there to Satan as the strong man, unless he first binds the strong man. He's not an invincible man. He's just strong. He's not perfect and holy and almighty. He's just strong. Then indeed, after binding the strong man, he may plunder his house. He's referring here to Satan as the strong man who needs to be bound before he can be plundered. It's no coincidence that in Mark, the very first miracle of Jesus was an exorcism which is a way of Mark telling us the battle that Satan and Jesus are fighting is the first battle Jesus needs to fight. We all come into the picture with our salvation later, yes, but that's only possible, that's only possible if Jesus defeats the powers of the evil one. Jesus must liberate humanity from the power of evil before he can begin to restore us to God. So the first preeminent, most important thing that Jesus came to do in the first place was to bind the power of sin so that he can bring a new kingdom and plunder his house. That's what he's saying there. So he says, verse 28, Because of this, because I work like that, because I've done that, and bound him, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, this is they meaning the scribes, they were saying, accusing Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not so much a, a specific offense against God as if we should all wonder, have I committed you know, the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? but let me tell you what it is, in case you're still wondering. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good. Let me say it again. It is personally, it is personally misjudging that Jesus is not who He says He is, And is not achieving the purposes of God. Which means that the religious leaders and Jesus' own family, those who knew the Scriptures and were closest to Him, were looking at Jesus, watching Him, seeing His work, and they were saying, that's the devil. When you cannot distinguish between good and evil, darkness and light, you're beginning to be beyond the pale of repentance. Isaiah 5.20 is a cool verse that says it this way. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The message here is this, putting the whole sandwich together. The message here is this, putting the whole sandwich together. The religious authorities and Jesus' own family misunderstood and opposed Jesus. Mark is portraying here the opposition by one as serious as the opposition by other. Those closest to him, those you wouldn't expect, Those who knew better. Those who knew their scriptures. Even those closest to Jesus opposed Him. Let me apply this clearly and carefully to us. The work Jesus came to do. Was to set people free from the oppression of the evil one. The work Jesus came to do was to set people free from the power of sin that condemned them to hell, which is to say, that is our work. That is who we are called to be. That is what we are called to do. So hear me now. If that is happening in our work as a church, as a people, corporately, from you individually, if you live a, a Mark 10.45 life that understands that you were brought here to do what Jesus did and to not be served, but to serve regardless of the circumstances, no matter who's around you saying, that's, that's the work of the devil. If setting people free from the oppression of the power of sin is happening through your service, through your work, through your giving, through your relationships, through your vocation, through your marriage, through your family, then you get it. This is why Jesus says this in verse 33. A couple more verses here. The, the warning is, the warning is that we should be careful, we should be careful calling evil what is good. We should be careful calling evil what is good, which is why he says this in verse 33. A couple more verses to go here. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? (laughs) Obviously at this point, he probably got a lot of blank stares. Who are my mother and my brothers, but he's setting it up and he says this, verse 34, looking about at those who are around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It isn't those in the crowd. It wasn't those who knew a lot about him. It wasn't those who knew the most about him scripturally. It wasn't those who who should have known It wasn't those in close proximity to Him. It wasn't those who shared His same name and DNA. It is those who saw Jesus for who He was and what He was doing. Which is that He was calling us to share in His mission of bringing the Father glory by expanding His kingdom. Don't miss this. You are on Jesus' team. If you recognize Him as Lord participate in his mission to bring God glory by expanding his kingdom. I think that at this moment, at the end of this text here, as Jesus is looking out over the scene, I I don't think Jesus is so much threatened by the personal betrayal. I, I think for us that's a lot of times where we get stuck, you know. I don't think he's so much threatened by the personal betrayal, though I'm sure it hurt I think, as Jesus is looking out over the scene, I think He is mostly sad, looking out at those around Him who were opposing Him. Mostly sad. But they were sure they were right about who He was and why He came. Deceived and unaware of who He was and why He came. Sad that they were missing out. Sad that they were missing out on meaningfully and joyfully participating in the mission of the kingdom of God moving forward in the lives of people who need freedom from sin. So friends, don't miss this. Don't make the same mistake. Don't miss, don't miss the forest of Jesus' kingdom mission for the trees of your own traditions. Don't miss the forest of Jesus' kingdom mission for the trees of your own traditions. I'm happy all day long to talk about tradition that comes from here. All day long. If it doesn't. And you're still focused on traditions. That don't come from here. You've begun to live a life. In a trajectory. That will miss the forest. Of the forward movement. Of the kingdom of God. For the trees of your own traditions. Which means you're in danger. Of calling. Good. Calling evil what is actually good. Those are the stakes. Don't assume you're not in the text. Because what Jesus came to do is to recenter us. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. For we have each of us in our various ways missed the forest of the forward movement of your kingdom in the lives of people. For the trees of the personal securities that we hold to in our man-made traditions because we like them, they feel good, we know them well. Lord, We just ask, we open our hearts to the truth that you would make of us a people who meaningfully and joyfully participate in the same work you came to achieve, which is to set people free. Lord, show us what that looks like. Continue to develop in us a desire for participating in your kingdom that trumps all other desires. Because we know that as we give ourselves to being who you called us to be, you will bring to us joy. You will give to our lives purpose. You will show us with greater clarity what it is that you did for us so that we would love you with greater passion. Aware that you came, the person of Jesus, to give yourself for us. A ransom was paid for us from heaven. Straight from your heart. Perfect, sinless, holy and pure God of the universe. You gave yourself to us in Jesus who lived a perfect life for us. The life we couldn't live so that you could buy us back when no amount would cover. Lord, we love you for that. And we ask that you would make of us uh, people and a congregation that is laser focused on that gospel truth so that we would see you work we would see your spirit move so that we would see in the lives of people around us a freedom from the oppression of sin we ask this in the name of your son Jesus Amen